Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One very interesting set of points within Philip K. Dick's Address the Android and the Human have to do with the status and the potential of kids, of youth, of young people. And he's writing this in the early 70s. So I'm an example at this point in time in my early 50s of the you know very edge of the kids that he's talking about. He's also talking about those who would be 10 years, 15 years older than me, the very end of the baby boomers, the beginning of what we now call Generation X. And Dick talks about them as being a reason for a sort of optimism within a society in which we are becoming more and more closely enmeshed with our machines and which is eroding the distinction between Android on one side and human being on the other, not just as a abstract sort of individual thing, but also promoted within our society in a variety of ways. He discusses psychotropic drugs that are used to control behavior. He talks about the state. He talks about other entities. He talks about the technology that is enabling this. And he sees the kids as a way or actually a not even a movement, but a tendency for resisting what he calls the wholesale production of the android life form. And so we should remind ourselves of something that's encapsulated here in one statement. Becoming what I call, for lack of a better term, an android means, as I said, to allow oneself to become a means, to be pounded down, manipulated, made into a means without one's knowledge or consent. The results are the same but you cannot turn a human into an android if that human is going to break laws every chance he gets. Androidization requires obedience. Most of all, predictability. It is precisely when a given person's response to any given situation can be predicted with scientific accuracy that the gates are open, he says, for the wholesale production of the android life form. What good is a flashlight if the bulb lights up only now and then when you push the button? Any machine must always work to be reliable. The android, like any other machine, must perform on cue, right? So youth is able to resist this in some way. And to go to a passage that we're going to look at a little bit more later on, he talks about Walt Whitman's marching to the sound of other drummers. And he says it could be rephrased this way, falling not in response to unexamined, unchallenged alleged verities, but in response to a new, an inner and genuinely authentic human desire. And he says, youth of course, has always tended towards this. In fact, this is really a definition of youth. So he's not just talking about the kids of his time. He's talking about adolescence and even young, you know, adults as this body that because it's to some degree, you could say, 
alienated or repressed or has other reasons why it doesn't buy into the society resists what he's calling androidization. And this is a good place to get to look at something that he's also calling a new individuality. We could talk about kids these days and kids these days is a great expression because it's perennial, right? The kids these days are the ones who I'm teaching in my college classes. And 20 years from now, they'll be talking about kids these days themselves and there'll be a new breed over and over again. So we're looking at the kids kids of the 70s that Dick says that he spent a lot of time with and they are inspiring him with optimism. We're also talking about kids in the past and we're talking about kids in the future. And all of us most likely have been those kinds of kids to some degree at one point or another. So he says, as the children of our world fight to develop their new individuality, their almost surly disrespect for the verities, the truths that we worship, they become for us, and by us I mean the establishment, a source of trouble. They get in the way. They don't do what it is that is expected, demanded, required of them. And notice what he says here. This is very, very interesting. It's not the politically active youth that he particularly has in mind. It's not organized resistance, revaluation. They're too easy to co-opt in many ways. He says, I don't mean those politically active youth, those who organize into distinct societies with banners and slogans. Why not? To me, that is a reduction into the past, however revolutionary those slogans might be. And he says, I'm referring instead to those intrinsic entities. What is that? The kids, each of whom is on his own doing what we call his thing. And so he gives an example here that is a good distinction that might help flesh this out. He may, for example, not break the law by seating himself on the tracks before troop trains. Remember, this is at the height of of the sort of failing of the Vietnam War when draft is still going on. So laying down on the tracks to, to interrupt the deployment of troops is a political act, right? So he says it wouldn't consist of that necessarily. His flouting of the law may consist in something different. For example, taking his car to a drive-in movie with four kids hidden in the trunk to avoid having to pay. These two actions have something in common, as he says, a law is being flouted, right? There's a refusal to go along with the order, with the structure of things that has been determined politically. The first transgression has political, theoretical overtones. The second, a mere lack of agreement that one must always do what one is ordered to do, especially when the order comes from a posted printed sign. And he says, in both cases, there is disobedience. We might applaud the first as meaningful, the political disobedience. The second, he says, is merely irresponsible. Meaningful, political, committed, coherent, irresponsible with everything else that that implies. So this is a very, very interesting distinction that he's making there and a very interesting valuation. Dick is not saying, well, don't do any political acts or get involved in decision-making or anything like that. But he's saying that there is a, a positive value in certain circumstances to disobedience of this sort. And he says, it's in the second I see a happy 
happier future. There have always been in history movements of people in organized oppositions to the governing power. This is merely one group using force against the other, the outs against the ins. It's failed to produce a utopia so far, and I think it always will. Is the disobedience of youth going to produce a, a, a utopia? No, more likely something that's a dystopia, but it's a dystopia that takes place within a different kind of larger dystopia and then produces, you could say, utopian enclaves or moments within it. And so coming back to this theme, right? He talks about the society that we're living in, one that can be characterized as of mass communication, of growing totalitarianism, a technological society. And he notes that this has, in some respects, failed, and it's failed in part due to the kids. It's failed in part due to other things as well. We can think about the corruption of adults not doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they're acting sort of like kids on large and making sure that things don't actually work the way that they're supposed to. So for example, if some company managed to put out something that would reduce us all to androids, odds are, Dick thinks, that somebody would have cheated, somebody would have stolen, somebody would have embezzled, somebody would have done less than the, the work required along the line, and it wouldn't really work effectively. So he says a couple things here. He says, there's been too much persuasion. The television set, the newspapers, all the so-called mass media have overdone it. Words have ceased to mean much to these kids. They've had to listen to too many. They cannot be taught because there's been too great an eagerness, too conspicuous a motive to make them learn. The anti-utopia science fiction writers of 15 years ago, and I was one of them, he said, foresaw the mass communications propaganda machinery grinding everyone down into mediocrity and uni uniformity, but it's not coming that way. Why not? So he's got a great example here. While the car radio dins out the official view on the war in Vietnam, the young boy is disconnected the speaker so he can replace it with a tweeter and a woofer. In the middle of the government's harangue, the speaker is unattached, and as he expertly hooks up better audio components in his car, the boy fails to even to notice the voice on the radio is trying to tell him something. This skilled craftsman of a kid listens only to whether there is distortion, interference, or a frequency curve that isn't fully compensated. His head is turned towards immediate reality, the speaker itself, not the flatus voci dinning from it. Right? So the mass communication society is losing its effect you could say, right? And we can think about how does this apply in our day of social media and interconnectivity through the internet and mobile devices, right? And then he says something else interesting about totalitarianism. The totalitarian society envisioned by George Orwell in 1984 should have arrived by now. The electronic gadgets are here. The government is here, ready to do what Orwell anticipated. So the power exists, the motive and the electronic hardware, but these mean nothing because progressively more, more and more so, no one is is listening. The new youth that I see is too stupid to read, too restless and too bored to watch, too preoccupied to remember the collective voice of the authorities is wasted on him. He rebels. But what is the motive for the rebellion here in this technological totalitarian mass communication society? It's not well, it is for some, you know, political, coherent, ideological, right? And they would like to replace the powers that be with themselves as powers, Dick thinks, deep in their heart. Maybe they don't say that on paper, but he says... The rebellion is not out of a theoretical, ideological consideration for most of the youth, only out of what might be called 
Pure selfishness, self-centeredness, looking at one's own thing, plus a careless lack of regard for the dread consequences authorities promise him if he fails to obey. He cannot be bribed because what he wants, he can build, steal, or in some curious, intricate way, acquire for himself. He cannot be intimidated because on the streets and in his home, he's seen and participated in so much violence, it fails to cow him. He merely gets out of its way when it threatens, or if he can't escape, he fights back. And so here's another prime example. When the locked police van comes to carry him off to the concentration camp, you know, something that's that's characteristic of totalitarian society. The guards will discover that while loading the van, they failed to note another equally hopeless juvenile has slashed the tires. The van is out of commission, and while the tires are being replaced, the other youth siphons out all the gas from the gas tank for his souped-up Chevrolet Impala and has sped off long ago. He says, the absolutely horrible technological society, that was our dream, our vision of the future. We could foresee nothing equipped with enough power guile or whatever to impede the coming of that dreadful nightmare society. And here's where it gets very funny. It never occurred to us that the delinquent kids might abort it out of the sheer perverse malice of their little individual souls. God bless them. And he gives an example here of the phone freaks. These were people who figured out back when there used to be pay phones, they figured out how to hack the system and make as many free phone calls. Back then you had to pay for long distance calls and you had to pay to use the pay phones. As many free calls as they would like to make. They found a way to break things. They found a way to steal. And so Dick ends up saying that what he foresees ahead, he says, speaking in science fiction terms, I now foresee an anarchic totalitarian state ahead. Now, that seems like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? What we call an oxymoron, an anarchic, no rule, perhaps against any authority, totalitarian, where it's not just that there is a hierarchy and order, but it's totalizing. It's supposed to extend all society. How can the two of these coexist together? Well, there's going to be government. There's going to be all sorts of things like government, like local governments and institutions and corporations and pick whatever you like, uh, political organizations. And on the other hand, there will be the anarchic desires, actions, impediments, wrench in the gears, things that youth are putting forward and perhaps some adults who remain like that. And so he talks about where we get some really interesting, positive content He says that if we're in the process of becoming a totalitarian society in which the state apparatus is all powerful, arguably the case for many people in our society right now, Here's what Dick says. The ethics most important for the survival of the true free human individual, so maintaining some sort of very important value, would be what? Cheat, lie, evade, fake it, be elsewhere, forge documents, build improved electronic gadgets in your garage that'll outwit the gadgets used by the authorities. That's the anarchic part, right? If the television screen is going to watch you, rewire it late at night when you're permitted to turn it off. Rewire it in such a way the police flunky monitoring your transmission. It mirrors his living room back at his house. When you sign a confession under duress, forge the name of one of the political spies who's infiltrated your model airplane club. Pay your fines in counterfeit money or rubber checks or stolen credit cards. Give a false address. Arrive at the courthouse in a stolen car. Tell the judge if he sentences you will substitute aspirin tablets for his daughter's birth control pills or put his honor on a mailing list for pornographic magazines. He's talking about all these different modes of rebellion. And then he says results should be interesting, shouldn't they? 
So he says, this is a model for how we ought to behave. And one of the key aspects of this, we just talked about, you know, lie, cheat, steal, evade, is unreliability. If you want to avoid the androidization of things, of people, if you want to not reduce human beings to that, you have to become unreliable. And here we go back to this original issue that he was talking about as central to youth, right? If you become unreliable, then you cannot become the android because the android is supposed to be there to do the same thing over and over again. And so this is why he says, this is what I wish to hear to say to you here today. I wish to disclose my hope, my faith in the kids who are emerging now, their world, their values, and simultaneously their imperviousness to the false values, the false idols, the false hates of previous generations, right? He talks about a tremendous spirit of optimism that I feel so urgently and strongly that our collective tomorrow exists in embryonic form in the heads or rather in the hearts of those kids who right now at their young ages are politically and sociologically powerless. He goes on and, you know, he says that we need to actually understand how they are keeping human nature alive in some way. And this is where we should think about something. So he is, as I pointed out in the beginning, writing in the early 70s. He talks about himself as living among these kids in some manner. They are a source of trouble. They're doing their thing, right? They're irresponsible. And he says that we can put whatever label we want on this. It could be laziness, short attention span, perversity, criminal tendencies. It could also be, as he talks about, at the very end, a sort of merriness and here we go, a spirit of merry defiance of spirited, though not spiritual bravery and uniqueness, talking about the girl who steals all of the Coca-Cola, right? Those kids have grown up. I'm one of the youngest of the kids that he's talking about, you could say. I was two or three when he gave this address. How should we read this now? How should we interpret this now? How should we understand this? Have we accelerated? Have we intensified this mass communication growing totalitarian technological society? Who are the kids who are reacting against us? Should they be more anarchic rather than political? These are all a set of open questions that we, as we read and reinterpret this wonderful address by Dick, have to think through in our own time. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.